Hi, welcome to Ideology. McMurray here with Drew Stedman on a, uh, a muggy Monday afternoon in Waco, at least at the time of this recording. It seems that summer has, uh, is, is upon us here in Waco. But uh, we are excited to start a new kind of mini-series. We just finished up three weeks on biblical interpretation, had a guest in the middle of that with uh, Craig Oman out of North Carolina. I recommend going back and uh, listening to those three episodes taken together on biblical interpretation. But shifting gears today, and I just looked at the outline, Drew, and talking about anthropology, and it looks like this could be two, three, multiple episodes. I doubt we can cover everything in this one episode today, looking at what it means to be human, and I'm already excited because um, looked at uh, Nancy Piercy's book, uh, Love Thy Body, on personhood theory, and I think a lot of that will overlap with what you've got uh, cooked up here for us over these next several episodes. So without further ado, anthropology, talk to us about it. That's a great lead-in, Mick. And yes, I think our central question is, what does it mean to be a person? Or maybe I could say it differently, what makes us a person? And I'd argue that the answer to this question is probably the single greatest fissure between the Christian faith and the American secular religion that I always like to talk about. I think this right here is where you see the greatest divergence in belief systems and hopefully, as we'll see um, you know, over this episode and maybe a few others, hopefully unpack that in a much deeper way so you can get a handle on what I'm talking about here, because I, I do believe that they are pretty far apart from each other, and that informs a whole lot of other things that then come into play in our lives. So because this is a wide-ranging topic, I want to start off by giving an overview of my thesis of where I, I think this matters. And then that's going to give us some space to then dive in at a deeper level onto some of these issues. But I just want you to get a handle first and foremost on why this matters, what I'm talking about, and then we can you know, kind of go back through and look at some of the different things on the secularism version of this, on the historic Christian version of this, and just start to, to see a little bit more in detail about what we're talking about when it comes to being a person. So let me start off. Um, this is what I'm going to say is a Christian view of personhood. And first of all, it's important to recognize that person is a term that originated in Trinitarian reflection. So coming out of the development of the creeds, there was this desire to, to figure out how do we refer to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? If God is one, what, what do we use? What kind of term can we use to describe these three? And so God is a single substance in his wisdom, his power, his will, and his attributes, and yet in God is three relations. And so that's where, and, and I'll take some time later to take you into personological development, but this is where the Latin term person was first applied. And human persons then are, get ready for this, big word or big phrase, an analogical derivative of the divine persons. So here's what I mean by that. Analogy refers to something where there is a literal correspondence, but there also is fundamental difference. So in other words, Mick, you and I are persons in the same way. So what you are as a person is, is similar to what I am as a person. The, the word we could use there is univocal. But in God, he is a person, literally, and I am a person, literally, but there is a fundamental difference in what it means for us to be persons. And so we always have to be extremely careful then about how I use the word person to describe myself and how I use the word person to describe God. We have to pay attention to the gap in between us in our understanding of that term. But nonetheless, the reason I said analogical derivative is God is person first and foremost. Then I am as a human being and created in the image of God. And so there is something in me that reflects God. There is a literal correspondence. 
And ultimately, I think the salient point here is that I receive my personhood from God and from God alone, that it is because I'm in his image that I am able to be person. That's what separates me. That's what makes me unique. And that's where I receive this distinctive value that we have as human persons. So a key aspect then of our personhood is what we can look at with God. Just as God has a substance, we too have a substance. We have an identity. We have a will. We have wisdom, all these different attributes. They're not the same as God's attributes. We want to be like him, but we have attributes nonetheless. And also, just as God is persons in relation, so are we persons in relation. So in the, in the case of God, this is eternal, unchanging. God has always been three. Uh, in the case of humans, this is something that happens to us over time. We enter into relationality. We experience relationship with one another. And ultimately, in our relationship with God, and somewhere in the midst of that, that's where we start to really tap into our identity as persons. Maybe said another way, our personhood is realized in our relationship. So let me put this all together in in a way that's, you know, if you're having a hard time hanging with me, I I get it. Um, You got to really dive into a lot of pretty dense theological content on this topic. And I was actually talking to a friend today just saying that you know, even as somebody who reads a lot, I'm always discovering not just new authors, but new entire veins of it that I've not even touched before. It's so dense, so much history behind this. And as we'll get to later on, it's actually a really cool feature in my mind. But let me tie it together. I have an individual identity and a relational identity, and those two go together. It's part of a united whole. And my personhood is experienced in God, and I'm going to frame this in a Trinitarian way. I am created in God's image— and the, the upshot of that is that all humans are persons simply because we're created in the image of God. There is no human who is not also a person. That I realize my personhood through Christ, that he became human and made a way for me to become a person in the fullest sense of the term that's free from the shackles of sin and death and all the other aspects of the curse. This is eschatological, meaning um, I haven't fully realized it yet, but I'm, I'm in process towards it. And then lastly, I experience the fullness of my personhood through the Holy Spirit, the transformation that takes place in God. And so what I, what's happening within all of this, it's, it's my connection to God that's enabling me to walk in the fullness of my personhood. And then therefore what happens, it's actually my connections to others that does the same. And so somewhere in the midst of our relationships and ultimately our relationship with God is what enables us to live in the fullness of what it means to be a person. So this, in a, in a short summary, is the Christian view. And I recognize that may not seem short to you. So what I think I hear you saying, Drew, is that in terms of what it means to be a person, our anthropology, even ontologically, what it means to be human is that as those made in the image of God, we have to start with God's personhood, that he is Trinitarian, he is three in one, that his relationship within himself, which is hard for us to understand, but his relationship within himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, lays the blueprint for what it means to be human, that in a sense, we are uh, not human until it is realized relationally, because again, we're made in the image of God. And this would be an interesting conversation to cross-section with uh, philosophy of language, that uh, language is part of what it means to be human, and we uh, arrive at our linguistic abilities um, socially. Being in relationship with others and ultimately being in relationship with God is a realization of what it means to be human. And you haven't talked about it yet, but that requires a level of rationality, of communi- of communication, of the ability to emote, the ability to constrain our impulses, the ability to channel our creative impulses. 
uh, and so on. All of this is encapsulated into what it means to be human as those made uh, in the image of God, at least as a starting point that's um, a clear uh, point of distinction that uh, compared to where you're, I think you're about to go within the secular framework of what it means to be human. Yeah, Mick, that's a good summary. Um, I'm going to bracket some of what you said, because I think where we have to be careful with this is if we start with who God is as persons, then that informs who we are versus starting with who we are and then using that to try to identify God. And it's challenging, uh, you know, and, and there is, I think, something in our understanding of ourself that can shed light at one level on who God is. Um, we have to be careful in how we do that, but but ultimately God himself became a human person, so that that is an opportunity for us to... Um, reflect upon that. But, you know, what I'm trying to do as a starting point is just let's look at God and his in his personhood and then recognize that who we are is created in his image. Secondly, um, I'm drawing a little bit of a distinction here between person and human. Um, not to say that there's not correspondence, because I think from a Christian perspective, all humans are persons, because all humans are created in the image of God. But I'm, I'm kind of using human to talk about our biological identity, personhood to talk about uh, maybe a more fundamental identity or spiritual identity. Um, or understanding of self. So that'll come into play a little bit, but it's the same, same point that, that essentially you're making here. And um, I, get, I get that this is really complicated, so <laughs> sorry for everybody out there uh, just picturing people trying to listen to this while they're working out. But, um, but I, do, I do think this is really important. So let me, let me maybe show why this matters so much, because I know this can sound really esoteric, but ultimately I'm growing in my passion on this topic because of the impact I see. I believe that our dominant culture has a radically different understanding of what it means to be a person, or maybe said a little bit differently, how to realize their personhood. So in our dominant culture, my personhood is something that I discover within myself. And you'll see in, in the Christian frame, what happens, my personhood is something that I discover ultimately in God, but then in relationship with other people. There is something about attributes that I have, but but that's not ultimately the roadmap for me to realize my personhood. My personhood comes in the context of my relationships. And, and there is an individual identity that's part of that, but that's not the totality of that. And to me, that's just such a stark contrast with what our world tells us it means to be person. Because, you know, in a brief summary in our world's version of this, that my personhood is what I find within myself. And, you know, depending on what variant, I actually think there's a lot of contradictions and make when you were walking us through Nancy Piercy's book, you really did a great job unpacking this. You know, the, on the one hand, that there's a hyper-focus on our embodiment, in particular our sexuality, but then on the other, there's this dualism of, you know, there's this kind of mystical identity that I have within myself that's completely disconnected from my embodiment or other aspects of it. But, but really, if we could even take a step back um, further from it, I think the key idea of our personhood is that it's something within myself that only I can ever realize only I am able to figure out what that is. And then my life's work at one level is to, to self-actualize my interior sense of identity. And that's how I walk in the fullness of what it means to be a person. And this is opposite. This is so different from the Christian understanding of personhood. And it has profound ramifications in so many different directions. You know, I think in the Christian version of it, it's my relationships that enabled me to walk in the fullness of my personhood. So my relationships are a fundamental component of my journey towards personhood. 
And there are external things that enable me to, to be a person. And first and foremost, that is in God himself. And so I'm not looking internally. I'm, I'm looking upward to God, and then I'm realizing that in communion with others. But then if I contrast that to the American secular version of this, it's telling me that actually those things are a threat to my personhood, that my relationships or the concept of God are constructions or things that other people are putting upon me. And if I'm not careful, they are going to keep me from realizing my personhood because my personhood is an individual quest that I alone can take. And anything that's put upon me could hinder that and could be an alien intrusion that could keep me from actualizing my personhood. And I don't see a way to reconcile those two things. And I think that this is a stark difference and leads to pretty profound ramifications for the way that we live based on which version of anthropology or personhood that we take on. Yeah, and this is where if you study philosophy, you know, Rene Descartes is emblematic of this shift where he grew up in, in within kind of a Christian frame, but took on a lot of the Renaissance and Enlightenment ideals at the beginning of the 17th century and then had his famous you know, moment of stark terror sitting by his fireside uh, one night contemplating the fact that he couldn't prove that he wasn't dreaming at that moment and began this kind of cascade of doubts that he couldn't believe that anything was real outside of himself he could, because he couldn't prove it. And he got down to the fact that the only thing he could be certain of was the fact that he was a thinking agent, thinking about thought itself. And so the famous quote, I think, therefore I am. And there was this fundamental shift to this subjective first-person experience being becoming more substantive than anything exterior, anything outside of himself. And I think that's, that's um, descriptive of where we are today, that that first-person experience that you're talking about, Drew, this this um, quest that we're on, this uh, quest of self-discovery or self-actualization that Nietzsche was so famous for kind of codifying within a, a, psych- a psychological framework, that this is the fundamental nature of what it means to be human, which is um, subjective from the inside out, rather than anything objective from the outside in that authoritatively gives shape to the notion of personhood. And I think you could really look at um, so much of the philosophical and at times theological traditions over the last, I don't know, 500 years and see the way that this is developed. Charles Taylor, who I've referenced before, you know, has um, pretty significant work on this or um, other, other works that we have cited chart this journey that has gotten us to where we are today. And yeah, you can definitely see the romanticism influence here, the existential influence here. Um, even schools of thought that maybe have been historically opposed to each other, you know, are are coming into something now where they're all tied in some kind of way. And the the thread that I see in all of it, though, is the primacy of the individual in the interior sense of identity that you can alone discover for yourself. I want to take the balance of this episode and unpack the concept of person as I understand it in modern American secularism. And then um, next week we'll pick back up and I'll dig a little deeper um, on the development of person as a Christian concept. What I find with the modern idea of personhood is a ton of contradiction. And I think we have to recognize this is a very new and experimental philosophy. So what passes off as normal, especially if you're younger, our age and younger, so millennial, Gen Z, what you understand as person that might be our normal impulse is actually a pretty extreme historic understanding of personhood. I'm, I'm not sure that you can find any cultures that view this the way that we do. So if you kind of take the arc of human existence in time, and that would include a lot of faith backgrounds and cultural backgrounds, 
they, they shared a lot more traits on a more communal understanding of personhood and identity as something that was derived from something greater than the self. And that, you know, that was pretty common. And what that greater thing was might have been different depending upon the culture. But as best I can tell, we are one of the few, if not the only groups that has ever bought into this idea of personhood as something entirely that we discover and realize for ourselves, with the goal of minimizing outside influences from keeping us from doing that. And that's where I've often used the phrase hyper-individualism. So to me, what's significant here is this is not normal, and that's important to, to recognize, but it's also very experimental. And you know, as you're going to see throughout this, I am heavily skeptical, if, if not worse, um, how this is being played out in the world and the impact that it's having. And the problem is that it's become normal for so many people in modern American culture, maybe also in a few other parts of the world. And yet at the same time, I think as it's increasingly normalized, we're starting to see some really bad negative effects of this view of personhood. And um, what's sad to me is that means there's going to be whole generations of people that are buying into some ideas that I find to be extremely harmful and hinder people from walking in the fullness of of what it means to, to be a person. And just to put a plug in for the Christian tradition, you know, we've got several thousand years of sorting this one out and, and the sheer volume and the detail and the thoroughness on this concept, despite at times hypocrisy or challenges, there's just such a richness, a wealth to draw from on this topic. And I, I think that the modern secular religion exposes its own poverty and its lack of development in these areas. And, and in many ways, it's parasitic on the Christian tradition. So it's pulling things from the Christian tradition while simultaneously trying to remove the foundation of the things which it is pulling. And, you know, it just that leads to a lot of contradictions, a lot of circular reasoning. And ultimately, I don't think there's any way that it could possibly be sustained. And I, if you have eyes to see it, I think it doesn't take much to see the cracks erupting all around us on how this concept of personhood is not working in our culture. So let me dive in a little bit deeper on what this is. Uh, what are the basic tenets, um, so to speak, of the secular version of personhood? First, you are an entirely unique individual, and you are engaged in what I'm going to term a heroic quest to discover your identity that you might self-actualize it in this little bit of life that you have. And to break this down, what this means is there's very little identity outside of your interior self-understanding. And this is the key point. Other identities that are out there that are placed upon you are false identities that need to be deconstructed so that that interior identity can really shine to the surface. And if we're going to drill deeper, there's a moral imperative to this because a lot of times what is understood as a false identity is tied to some form of oppression. And, you know, I'll use the one that's most relevant to us is that you have maybe a religious heritage, and that religious heritage has a way of normalizing what it means to be a person. And so this would be if I were secular critiquing the Christian faith, the Christian faith imposes a, a view of personhood that then its adherents are asked to live within. And so, and so put another way, it is a socially constructed sense of personhood that's put upon you that allows for certain elements of your personhood to come, but then it also might hinder other elements of your own interior sense of understanding. And so what ends up happening is maybe you have these things that are the real you that have been buried underneath religious tradition, and you live with a lot of guilt because you feel the dissonance between those two. And eventually what, what needs to happen is somebody needs to help you come along, identify where you might have false religious guilt that's been imposed upon you, and allow your interior sense of personhood to come to the surface so that you can be who you really are. And who you really are is understood as that kind of mystical quality of, of your own desires and self-understanding of your identity. 
And that's what matters the most is you being able to express that and live that without hindrance in this life. Likely the, I mean, there are probably a lot of manifestations of this, but um, human sexuality is a, is a big one. Probably the dominant uh, kind of strain of narratives when it comes to human personhood over the past century or so. And uh, you know, Freud was a real key thinker in this regard that if if humans are just animals, we're just wet machinery, and we're the sum of our impulses, and the sexual impulse being chief among those, then to repress that is not just to um, constrain an impulse, which is what every you know, major philosophical tradition, religious tradition, that the, the path to freedom was to constrain our appetites, but actually the constraint of that appetite is a form of oppression. And uh, later, the Frankfurt School kind of combined that thought with uh, Marx and Hegel, and, and that to constrain our, our sexual impulses is actually a form of political opp- oppression, kind of alluding to what you were just talking about, Drew. So to kind of remake ourselves from the inside out is to identify that kind of the internal orientations, if you will, sexually to become authoritative when it comes to identity and any form of authority outside the self that would redirect those impulses is not just seen as restrictive, but actually oppressive in a form of victimization. Yeah, sexuality is and gender are definitely where these are the most acute and the most obvious in our culture. However, I think it'd be a mistake to think that it's limited to those things. And that's why today I have my eyes set on something even bigger, because I think it gets down to the core of who we are as a person. And so for as intense as the conversations around sexuality and gender are, and as important as they are to engage, what I want to suggest is they are actually symptoms of a distinctly different anthropology between the two belief systems. And so maybe said differently, if I embrace the secular idea of personhood it's almost inevitable that I'm going to end up at the modern American view of human sexuality and gender. And so it's certainly a flashpoint and probably for most people, maybe the most emotional. But I want to, I want to look at a different area today that I think is also extremely influenced by this, and that is how we understand our relationships. And to me, this is a giant flaw at the heart of the kind of modern idea of personhood, is that all human relationships necessarily infringe in some way upon the the ones with whom they are in relation. So it is impossible for me to be in a relationship with somebody and have meaning to that relationship without me infringing upon that relationship if I'm buying this kind of modern secular view of personhood. What we're always doing in human relationship is asking one another to modify behavior or to live up to the standards of that relationship. And, you know, that's underneath culture, that's underneath I think almost all elements of, of human relationship. And what ends up happening is that we then develop a range of behavior that is unacceptable for those with whom we live. You know, I think there's people out there that want to label this as a distinctly religious thing, but I don't buy that at all. Like, I, I think you could be a complete atheist. I think you could be any number of things. I think you could be, you know, if you picture in your mind who's a type of person that that most embodies this secular understanding of personhood. And, and I would still say that I bet if I could analyze their relationships, I'm going to discover that there are rules and boundaries and, and infringements upon the other person. And so all human relationships require some form of self-limitation, which then limits our quest for self-actualization. And I think this becomes a huge problem, and that is the choice between self-actualization and deep relationship. And I don't know that you get to have both of them under this framework of what it means to be a person. 
and you know, later on another episode, um, I'll, I'll share maybe a, a renewed way of looking at self-actualization of what could that mean for a Christian. But I think if I buy into the secular understanding of this, then my relationships are an inherent threat on my interior sense of identity and my quest to self-actualize who I really am. And that then becomes a significant, massive hindrance on what does it mean to be a person. So let me give some examples of where I see this and how I see this shaking out in our society. I think the most obvious would be the fracturing of family. And that is the breakdown of marriage. That is ruptures between parents and children. That is also, I think, ruptures in extended families. You know, I would say if you were to look at modern American culture, the number of tight-knit, close extended family units is significantly lower than probably what we find in most other countries around the world. And even our geographic isolation, you know, we could add a lot of different factors. And, and you know, I, I want to be careful when I talk about these macro trends in society to, to recognize that each individual person's story is different. So this is not meant to be an attack on any one person um, as much as to, to see macro trends and then recognizing that you could be somebody who desires to have healthy relationships more than anybody else and still stuff doesn't work out sometimes. And so tremendous amount of grace um, as you hear this. But um, let's just use this as maybe a broad diagnostic of the culture. Now, marriages have always been challenging. And, and, you know, there's a whole host of things of infidelity, abuse, neglect, things like that, that have historically led to rupturing of marriages. And that is goes to the dawn of time. However, something I increasingly hear today is the phrase, it isn't working for me. And in other words, you know, it's not that something like that has happened to me, but there's something about my marriage that just has hindered my ability to self-actualize. And so my marriage is probably the problem then. And really, I need to be freed up to re-engage with my heroic quest to self-actualize. And so that causes me to shift away. Um, I see the same thing with, with parenting or advice around parenting, you know, where I, I've read a lot of articles that are explicitly talking about putting your career ahead of your kids or not having kids for the sake of your career or not entering into marriage for the sake of your career. So, you know, the thing that's more tied to your personal identity, which is your ability to self-actualize and, you know, reach your financial goals or your career goals or whatever it is that you want these other relationships at one level are holding you back from those things, you know, and and rightfully so. Like, they probably are going to hold you back. Um, it, it's very difficult to be all in on a particular career and climb to the top and also maintain healthy balance to invest in your key relationships around you. And that advice is certainly out there. Now, I could flip it, and I could also talk about the same thing of maybe somebody who is heavily invested in a marriage or their kids or some other relationship, but for the goal of self-actualizing themselves. And, you know, if you've ever experienced relationships like that of just you know, that could be extremely painful for people. You realize this is this is not about this kind of pure sacrificial love towards me, but this is about uh, me being a part of this other person's life as they self-actualize for themselves. And in a way, I'm an accessory towards that, you know? So you could look at any number of, of levels of this in our society, and you start to see these trends. I mean, I think the way our relationship to technology, it's not that technology in and of itself is an evil, but what technology is enabling is it's enabling us to embrace this way of living. And so you could see, you know, Mick, both you and I uh, ended up married before dating apps came out. And I'm not taking a shot at dating apps, but I I do know that a lot of them are really just a tool for people to have hookups, you know? So it's like the commodification of sexual relationship. And, and rather than having to um, pursue the depth of human commitment or, you know, the way that we engage with social media, I mean, just thing after thing after thing is enabling us to have shallow relationships where we get some of our relational needs met, but without having to have the deep commitment that comes from historically what, you know, close family or close friendship relationships would look like, where I'm having to more increasingly constrain what it is that I want to do. So maybe to summarize all that, 
at a cultural level, we have rebranded what it means to be in relationship, which is really the ideal relationship in our society is one where we don't hinder each other from their quest of self-actualization. And then we have technological tools that allow us to get our needs met, but without having to enter into the depth of commitment that has historically been a part of close family, tribal, village-type relationships, where we're actually having to constrain our own behavior or self-understanding so that we can fit in with the people around us and really walk in depth of closeness with them. Now what we do is our relationships, I think on a whole, are I would, I would suggest are shallower, and they're more centered around ourselves. And the theme of our life is this journey to become quote unquote, who we really are. Yeah, Adrian, there's quite a list that we could explore in terms of other factors that are contributing to the atomization of human relationships today. You know, just this morning, I was looking at a an article that was talking about, from the CDC, no less, that was talking about this epidemic of loneliness and how loneliness is as detrimental to health as smoking cigarettes and drinking alcohol and uh, not only the the contributing factor of uh, or a contributing factor to the rate of suicide that we see in our nation today, but also just the physical breakdown of the body. There's actual uh, physical effects when somebody is isolated isolated from other human relationships. And again, there's so many factors that contribute to that. Uh, you've talked about a few, and we could explore many others. But I think the point is you've you've kind of uh, driven this home, Drew, that um, the, the secular experiment is not working. It leads to fragmentation. Uh, it leads to atomization of relationships. And that's something unique that we're experiencing in our generation today. And it's not all bleak. There are wonderful things that are happening in, in the world around us. We'll explore some of those. But I think it's it's um, important to note where the underlying philosophies, where these underlying belief systems are leading us to expose some of those, the, the faulty logic and the faulty thinking that are leading to, to really unhealthy expressions of what it means to be human. Yeah, I just find myself so sad and so worried for people of our generation and younger generations of the way that they have been used, I think, as guinea pigs in this mass cultural experiment. And it's not good. You know, I, I think it's really in vogue right now for people to t- kind of take shots at um, the Christian faith and, you know, quote-unquote religious harm or things like that. And fair, you know, it's it's fair, and I think we need to always be humble and willing to listen of places where our faith hasn't helped people. But I, I find there's not very much of that same reflective attitude uh, for people who are part of the secular religion, uh, of recognizing maybe the way that their belief system has contributed to an enormous amount of harm and is reversing what has been progress in, in so many ways. I mean, for the first time in our nation's history, life expectancy is now steadily declining over the last several years. I mean, that's just shocking, you know, and, and you look, and the, the cause of all of it is substance abuse, and it's suicide, it's self-harm. I mean, it's things that we're not talking about, um, things that come from sicknesses like heart disease or cancer or things like that. We've seen tremendous breakthrough in those areas. But instead, the problem, I believe, lies at the heart of a bad understanding of what it means to be a person that is directly contributing to unbelievable rates of loneliness that is in turn leading to all kinds of other really negative outcomes. And I see this. I, th- I think with each generation, it's getting worse. And, you know, I think a task for all of us is going to be to sound the alarm on this, of like this, this view of personhood doesn't work. It doesn't lead people into what it promises to lead them into. And the quest for self-actualization typically leaves people pretty isolated. And, you know, you see this. It's like if at the core of who I am, if there was elements in my character that were selfish or angry or, you know, made it hard for me to relate to people, and if I bought into the idea that that's just who I am, and if people want to love me, they need to accept me for who I am and get out of my way, 
what's going to end up happening is maybe people will be nice to me, but they're not going to really walk in deep relationship with me. And eventually, when other people start to put up expectations on me, obligations on my time, or even modification to my behavior, then what I'm going to do is, and I'm going to receive some type of moral warrant from my culture to do this, is I'm going to distance myself from those people, maybe even take shots at them, uh, maybe even accuse them of, of harm towards me because they would have the audacity to ask me to constrain my behavior. And eventually what happens to me is I'm self-righteous and I'm alone. And I, I just am I'm so deeply concerned for people with that. And, you know, I think for all of us listening, especially if you're under the age of 40, so much of what we're sharing, it's hard to wrap our head around because we got raised in, you know, going back to our episode number one, the water we swim in has been teaching us this idea of personhood. And there is enough, you know, and I don't want to make it all sound bad. I think there is a lot of elements to this that actually are good and are shared with the Christian faith. You know, so it's not that it's all bad. There's enough truth in it to make it very appealing. And yet we've been raised with this to where we almost can't conceive of anything any differently. But we are. We are an experiment, you know, and historically, uh, this is not just a Christian thing, but historically, your personhood, you would be a part of maybe some kind of a village where your identity was assigned to you in every single facet of it, you know? And, and I'm not saying that was all good. Of course, that could be another tool of oppression. But I'm, you know, I think maybe where we look at it is we've been gradually been liberated. Um, I'm not so sure that that's true. I think we've just traded one oppressor for another. I think on the one hand, maybe if there was a lot of examples historically of communities where identity was assigned and for some people, they ended up incredibly oppressed as a result of that based on, you know, whether their skin color or some other factor or their ethnicity or their language grouping or whoever the dominant tribe was at the time, their gender, of course, you know. So certainly there's a whole history of oppression that took place in the historic way that people have understood personhood. And, uh, you know, again, to put a plug in for the Christian tradition, the idea of of human dignity and, and the dignity of the person we'll get to next time, I think, has provided a great corrective out of that, those type of situations for people, even if it's been applied with hypocrisy. You know, so at the same time, yeah, we absolutely need to be liberated from that. But I also look at it and I think, is it really helpful for us to where we think that at the result of that, our identity is entirely within ourselves? And so we've swung from having no say in what our identity is to now my identity is something that only I can dictate. You know, I, I don't know that either of those are that helpful. And I think both of those are going to lead to negative outcomes. And historically, I, I don't know of other people who've attempted this. Um, you know, for most of human history, we're not on a quest to realize our identity. Our identity is ascribed to us, and then what we end up doing is we live out of our identity. And so it provides a deep place of assurance where I have a, a group of relationships that I know I'm going to stick with my entire life. Um, not just one or two people, but a deep network of relationships. There's some kind of geographic fixed point for me that, you know, even at that level that, that I have. And there's certainly a sense of identity and morality and, and all of that. And so it's then out of that place that I engage my behavior in the rest of the world. And I would say just none of those things are, are fixed anymore. And I have to think that that's a contributing factor in the rise of anxiety and a lot of the other things that we're experiencing in our culture is I just don't know that humans were made to live as these isolated individuals on a quest to discover their personhood and their identity. And I don't know that it's healthy. So all that to say, obviously, I'm very deeply critical of the secular view of personhood. And, you know, um, something that, that um, you've hopefully heard me say before is that critique is easy. I don't think it's particularly challenging to critique the secular view of personhood. Um, I think it's riddled with contradictions, um, and I think the evidence is not good. It hasn't been around that long. In the short time it has been around, it's clearly not working. Critique is easy, um, but construction's hard. And so the next week or maybe the next two weeks, I, I want to provide a Christian constructive view of personhood 
that, you know, maybe on the one hand can show points of where we can have congruency with the secular idea, but hopefully transcend it by tapping into the resources of the Christian faith that enable what I believe is a much more robust account of the human person and ultimately a way of realizing who we are in God. Awesome. Thanks so much, Drew, and thank you for tuning in to this episode. Like Drew mentioned, we'll do another episode or two on anthropology, comparing and contrasting Christian viewpoints on what it means to be a human person with the secular narrative that is dominant in our society today. So tune in again next week, and we'll catch you then on Ideology.